Okay, uh, turn to Genesis 22. Next week I'll say turn to Genesis 23. <laughs> A question as you turn there, are you fighting against your sin alone? Or are you fighting as one joined to Jesus Christ? This is the third sermon in Genesis 22. The first sermon we focus on what I believe is the, the, the primary emphasis of the text, and that is Abraham is a model to us of faith, obedience, and love. Uh, the second sermon we actually focused on how Abraham reveals to us the love of the Father for his Son, Jesus Christ. And today our focus will be on how Abraham reveals to us Christ, Jesus himself. But before we get into that, I want to ask just a few questions to you personally. How are you doing today? Rhetorical, don't answer that out loud. How are you doing in the area of self-control? Are you driven by what makes you feel good in the moment? Or are you able to take captive your feelings and make them obedient to Jesus? Do you have your anger under control such that peace and patience and kindness flow consistently out of you? Are you consumed with showing yourself to be better than the people around you? Or are you content to use your gifts and abilities to serve quietly? Is your attitude one of grumbling and complaining? Are you always being critical about the faults of others? Or is your demeanor characterized by thankfulness and joy and peace? Do you see your brothers and sisters in the church for who they are in Christ, or can you only see them in their faults? Would the people around you say that you are kind and gentle? And do you inwardly love that which is good and hate that which is evil? Now, I could go on in that list, but I hope that as you listen to that, one, or at least, at least one, but maybe more of my questions felt like an arrow piercing your soul. Maybe you were reminded of previous failures of which you are still regretting. Maybe you are still in a 
knock down, drag out war with the inner desires of your soul. And you're not even sure who's going to win yet. Maybe you're just tired. Tired of fighting to be a better person and wondering whether or not true change is really possible. It doesn't feel good to think about how we have fallen short. And I would argue, I mean, I I have been at some times in my life been nicknamed happy. I would argue that it's not healthy to constantly be tearing ourselves down and focusing on negatives in your life. But I would also say that it's it's not healthy to ignore the truth about ourselves. We are not yet who we ought to be as Christians. And if we are truly born again, we are not yet who we want to be. The world will tell you that you should not feel guilt or shame. It's better to believe only good things about yourself. The unbelieving world sees how anxiety and depression are destructive to the soul. Therefore, they should be avoided at all costs, even at the cost of truth. But as Christians, we are bound to the truth. We cannot sacrifice the truth simply to feel better. But rather than the truth ultimately being destructive, we believe that the truth leads us to freedom. We must first look at the truth about ourselves, and then as Christians, we must then look at the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's what this message is about. We're going to look at the same passage we've looked over the last two weeks, but we're going to try to bring out how Christ is at the heart of this passage. So let's go ahead and read the text again today. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose... And went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. 
And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. May God bless the reading of his holy word. So how is Jesus revealed to us in this story? I believe there are three ways. He's revealed to us in God's provision of the ram. He's revealed to us in Isaac. And he is revealed to us in Abraham. So I'll just walk through those three. He's revealed to us in the ram. He's revealed to us in Isaac. And he's revealed to us in Abraham. How does the provision of the ram... Reveal Jesus Christ. This is the easiest of the three. Jesus is revealed in the fact that God himself provides what we owe. God does this on his own initiative. He does it. He provides for himself. God has absolutely no obligation to provide this ram. Another way to put it, God has absolutely no obligation to withhold his judgment over you. Now stop and reflect upon that for a moment. Each one of us deserves God's eternal wrath. That's what we deserve. It would be perfectly within God's rights to take our life and to judge us to an eternal hell. Now I know that the culture tells us to ignore and suppress these thoughts of guilt and fear and shame. But what I would argue is, what if those twinges of guilt and fear and shame that you experience are actually indicators of truth? But rather than to destroy you, what if they're there to actually move you towards your good? Now, none of us wants to entertain thoughts of not being good. But what if they're actually accurate? What if they actually describe us rather well? At least who we were at one time. What if the the guilt feelings that you have are not the product of bad parents who raised you with biblical values? I've heard that before, right? Oh, my parents were at fault for causing all this guilt in me because they gave me a standard to live by. What if it's actually because there are still remnants within your heart of being made in the image of God and that fact that you have been corrupted actually feels bad? It's put there by God himself. It's a good thing. 
In the story of Abraham, and this is very important, in the story of Abraham, what if it's true that God has the right to require the sacrifice of Isaac? But not only does he have the right to require the sacrifice of Isaac, what if he also has the right to require the life of Abraham himself? You see, I believe in this story, God is teaching a very valuable lesson. If you're going to get the blessing, someone has to die. The death of Isaac is not just a a whim, a thought-up test that God had. It actually is true. Because of sin, because of corruption that lives in each one of us, you deserve to die. Now, once you start thinking that way, once you start understanding, oh, I feel bad about myself. Oh, I should feel bad about myself. I'm not anywhere close to what I should be and what God's holiness demands of me. Therefore, I deserve condemnation in hell. Oh, boy, that's truth. Is it not interesting that God teaches this lesson to the very person that he wants to bless? And that's why it's very important in this story. That God himself provides a ram. He provides what we owe. Look again at verses 12 through 14. God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And God sent them both home. You see, if if there was not death required, if it was not necessary for there to be death, now that he has passed the test, shouldn't they just both go home? No. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was the ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You see, the provision of the ram is essential to this story. It is not enough that God just prevents uh, Abraham from taking Isaac's life. Someone else's life must be taken. And God provides for himself that someone. Now, Here we go. This is the defining moment of Abraham's life. He is, he passes the test. Could we not name the place Abraham passes or Abraham is awesome? No. Abraham wants you to know the name for the story and it is that the Lord has provided. That's all that matters to him. And that's my question to us. Are you thankful? By the way, the Hebrew is Jehovah Jireh. That's where we get that statement. So, are you thankful that your God is Jehovah Jireh? That he is someone who actually provides for you? When it comes to the twinges of guilt and shame, it is more in line with the truth of God to acknowledge that those twinges of guilt and shame are only the tip of the iceberg. You're far more worse than you realize. 
But when you get to the point of saying, oh, yes, I am that bad. I do deserve that judgment. Do your thoughts continue on to see Jesus Christ that God has provided? Because that's the answer that God gives to guilt and shame. The Hebrew word for provided is ra'ah. Jehovah Jireh, that's that yara in there. And it simply means sees. And I, I looked at commentaries, and I, I don't know exactly how he sees got to be he provides. But I do think it's helpful. And I'm going to just, maybe it'll be a memory clue for you guys when you, when you think of Jehovah Jireh. I think we have to think of two things. First, God sees you. He sees through every facade. He knows the darkest parts of your heart. There's no fooling God. You don't get to, we can put on airs of being more righteous than we are to everybody else, but God sees right through. And so I think that he wants us to rightly understand that he sees accurately what is going on inside of us. But I also think God wants you to see his provision for you. He wants you to fix your eyes on Christ. He wants you to think less of what's going on in here and more of what's going on in him. See, it doesn't matter how evil you are. The blood of Jesus shed atones for your sin. God's righteousness is fully satisfied because he provided for himself what you needed. And it is only because of this that you can have peace with God. Be thankful that we have Jehovah Jireh. Secondly, Jesus is revealed to us in Isaac. It is not, in my opinion, although I've heard very good people preach this this way, it is not Isaac's faith and submission that we see Jesus' faith and submission. And I say this because the writer of Hebrews, when he is bringing up Isaac, he doesn't bring this story up at all. Instead, he focuses on an event that, that we just go, What? Isaac, in Hebrews 11.20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings upon Jacob and Esau. Like, that's the defining moment of his faith. And you're like, why wouldn't he just use this faith? You were, you were compliant as you were being put on the altar. That would have been a great example. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't use that. So I'm reticent to use this story as an example of Isaac's faith and obedience. I don't know exactly what was going on in him, and I know there's many good people that, that have taught that. So, But I do think we can see Isaac or see Jesus in Isaac in this story, but I think we do it by way of contrast. You see, Abraham does not have to lose his son to get the promises. But God does. You see, there's a contrast here. Isaac is certainly, uh, you think he's going to lose his life, but he doesn't. 
But there is someone who actually does lose his life, and that is the Son of God himself. So by way of contrast, we almost even say things like the sacrifice of Isaac. Well, Isaac wasn't sacrificed. It was just a threat of the sacrifice of Isaac. So by way of contrast, we see that in Christ, he is what Isaac wasn't. I also think that Isaac reveals to us Jesus and that the entirety of the promises are dependent upon Isaac. Uh, everything, like the entirety, if, if Isaac is taken away, then there's no, there's no blessing. It's like the, the blessing rises and falls with Isaac. Everything is encapsulated on him. And I think that that reveals to us very clearly Jesus Christ. You can turn with me if you want to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, is not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Every promise of God that God gives to you is dependent entirely upon Jesus Christ. And I think that Isaac actually foreshadows that. In fact, Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So there's a parallel, direct parallel between Isaac and Christ, because all of the promises are dependent upon this one person. And so I think that Isaac is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. We are blessed to partake of the promises of blessing, but we never do it directly. We are only doing it as we are trusting in Christ and as we are in him. That's how we receive blessing. And again, I'm bringing this all back to our culture and how our culture wants to say things. Our culture floods us with messages of how special we are. And that's not all wrong. We are all uniquely formed by the good hand of God, so we are uniquely wonderful in some ways. But our worth and value has less to do with who we are and more to do with our connection to Jesus Christ. He is the special one. But thirdly, and this is where I want to camp out, a little while, is that I believe Abraham reveals to us Jesus Christ. And I, do, I say this because I believe that Abraham functions, and we use spiritual theological terminology, as a covenant head. Now what do I mean by covenant head? That's big terms, I understand that. It basically means that he functions as a representative to the group, the larger group. So when a covenant head performs an action, it is as if the entire group performed the same action. He represents the entire group. And his actions affect everyone in the group in one way or another. As it relates to all of Scripture, we usually say that there are two covenant heads. The first is Adam and the second is Jesus. And so when we look at Adam, in his sinful act, 
his act affected all of us. We're all sinners because of Adam's one act of sin. We're born enjoying evil because we're connected to Adam as our covenant head. Well, we're also, well, let me just step back. So when you feel those twinges of guilt again, you feel those twinges of shame, it is, it is shame that's rightly directed to you, but it's shame that comes to you through Adam, your covenant head. In your relationship with Adam, you are ugly and guilty and sinful. That's who you are in Adam. On the other hand, there's another covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus was perfectly obedient. He was always loving his Father. He is a man of faith. He walks with God in righteousness. He does everything perfect. And now he says, if you trust in him, he also is your covenant head. How is this revealed in Genesis 22? Because what we're basically saying is that there is one person who does good things, and that those good things get attributed to the whole group. And this one person does a good thing, and his goodness affects the whole group. That's what we're saying here. How is that in the story of Abraham? And I think it begins, uh, is made clear to us in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now I want you to feel this. Because of Abraham's obedience, Abraham's offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That means he's going to have victory over his enemies. And because of Abraham's obedience, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So what he has done is going to affect a lot of people. Okay, that's, the, that's the, the issue there. And his obedience guarantees the fulfillment of the promises. And this language is so strong. If you don't have a, a, a grid of a covenant headship going on here, and you just look at Abraham as a model of your life, do you know what you're going to end up having to believe? If, if and only if I can be, uh, obey as much as Abraham then I can have the promises. Oh my goodness. That'd be the worst thing in the world. Until you come to the same level of obedience as Abraham, you can't have the promises? Only if you obey that perfectly? And I know that none of you think you have because every time I talk to you about this story, you're like, oh, I couldn't do that. Right? You see, even Abraham knew that his one act here was not everything. I mean, he had offered his wife to foreign kings twice. (laughs) He had doubted God on multiple occasions. All these kind of things. He has not lived an entirely perfect life such that this is, he actually earns this. But in the story, it looks like that because he is functioning as a covenant head to us. Now, here's the beauty of this. And I do want you to turn to Matthew to see these. 
Because there are two promises in this text in Genesis that are given to, to uh, Abraham. One, your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. And two, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Okay, those are the two promises. Look at how Jesus Christ assumes both of these for himself. Matthew 16, 18. Matthew 16, 18. Peter has just said that he is the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is he saying? He's saying, I am the covenant head, and all who are in me will crash through the gates of hell. They will not be able to prevail against me. Jesus knows his theology. He knows he's going back to Genesis 22 and the promises given to Abraham. And he's saying, I am the one who is perfectly obeyed. And then turn over to Matthew 28, the very famous passage, 18 and 19. This is the Great Commission. This is as Jesus is rising up into heaven. He says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You see what he's saying? I have perfectly fulfilled all of the law as your covenant head. Therefore, the gospel will be effectual as it goes to the nations, and the nations will be brought into me, and the people, my people, will be able to press against and conquer their enemies. Because Jesus is our covenant head. You understand why at the beginning of this message I said to you, are you fighting against sin alone or are you fighting against sin in Jesus Christ? You see, I believe that God is using Abraham to teach his people a lesson. Blessing comes through the covenant head. You cannot be who you're supposed to be separate from Jesus. You can only be who you're supposed to be in in union with your covenant head. It's funny because I, I am influenced, product of my seminary training, and Dr. Belcher is one of my favorite professors and a good friend of mine. And I looked through many of the, the commentaries on this passage, and I thought to myself, am I just, are you just seeing what you want to see, Mike? And I went to my notes from Dr. Belcher, and he says, Abraham's obedience is symbolic of the sacrificial act and obedience of the Messiah. Right there. It's just affirming to me. He had taught it to me and I forgot it. thought I was coming up with it. I wasn't. Just coming from him. It is the meritorious work of the Messiah that secures the ultimate salvation for God's people of all times. He is the conqueror one. He is the one who has stormed the gates of hell on our behalf. He is the one in whom you follow behind and are in him. So here's the application to us as I think about this today. This is not a short application. Don't think we're done right away. It'll take a little time. First off, if you have never repented of your sin and cast yourself upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he is not your covenant head. And you will stand alone before the judgment of God. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. 
There is no other salvation apart from him. Now, if you are trusting, well, let me just say this too. What does it mean to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? It is, lots of prayers have been lifted up, but it basically is your heartfelt cry saying, I am corrupt and deserving of God's wrath, and Jesus Christ, please save me. It's just that simple. You pray to him, saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. But for those of us who have already believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of us who are trusting in him, you must still learn to fight your battle against sin joined to Jesus as your covenant head. I would encourage you to begin by memorizing Galatians 2, 19 and 20. I, that's me, who I am in Adam, all the evil and wickedness in me, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You, if you want to think about your sinfulness, if you want to feel those twinges of guilt, they are all connected to who you were in Adam. You, there are two yous if you're trusting in Christ. There's the old you and there's the new you. And the new you loves that which is righteous. It wants to follow God. The old you continues to love that which is evil, which is why there's an irreconcilable war within your soul as a Christian. And the only way that you can actually win victories over the old you is by clinging to Jesus as your covenant head. When were you, when were you crucified? A lot of us say, well, I was crucified when I was converted, when I made my commitment to Jesus. It's not what the text says. I have been crucified with Christ. Well, when was Christ crucified? 2,000 years ago. You were crucified with him. How does that work? Because he is your covenant head, and what he did, you did. What happened to him happened to you. So I think at your conversion, there is a, there's like a, a transformation, a turning of the soul, there's an awaking of new life. I think that's true. But I also think that we are struggling still to put to death that old man every day. See, understanding Christ as your covenant head enables you to have peace with God even in the midst of struggle against your soul, your old nature. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're trusting in your own righteousness, if you're trusting how close am I getting to Abraham's obedience, if that's what you're trusting in, you will never have peace in this life. Satan wants you to define yourself by your sin. God wants you to define yourself by Christ's obedience. Satan wants you to live 
in your shame and defeat. He doesn't want you to believe that you've been crucified with Christ. And by the way, that's not a statement. I'm perfect. Because if that was a statement that I'm already perfect, I wouldn't even need to think about it. It's because I'm not perfect yet that I have to believe that I have been crucified with Christ. And, and this is another thing that's very helpful, your growth in godliness is not dependent on your own strength. It is dependent on the powerful working of the grace of God. Titus 2, 11 says, For by the grace of God has appeared, it is training us to renounce ungodliness. And here's the question I have. If this grace is so powerful, why am I still struggling with sin? And I would just tell you, I don't have an easy answer to that question. We often feel like the power of sin is strong and the power of God is weak. But I'm telling you, if we haven't learned anything from the life of Abraham, he he has been all along, moved along by the grace of God to get him to that point. And that's what you have to trust in. I understand that the speed of the grace of God is often frustrating and often mysterious. But it is real. David was a man of faith from early on. And then he struggles in a deep sin with Bathsheba. And Psalm 51 may be one of the most beautiful cries of a believer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. There's no... There's no statement of, oh, it wasn't that bad, or I have these extenuating circumstances. I did what was evil, but you can wash me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. God, you, you can't let this lack of truth inside of me reign forever. You must conquer it. Purge me with the hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And it goes on. You see, the biblical path to overcoming shame and guilt and even anxiety that is produced by that, and I have experienced all of those throughout my life, the biblical path is to acknowledge this is who I am in Adam, but then to recognize that I am a new creation, and this is who I am in Christ. And you have to believe that just because you've heard this message today, and you know it intellectually in your head, do not think you're going to walk out of here, and you're just going to walk on clouds. Satan will every day of your life shoot darts at you trying to condemn you and unless you take the time to actually apply these truths to your heart you'll just start believing what he says.
we need to pray. And I know we live in a culture that is just busy and full of interruptions, and, but somehow we've got to just remove ourselves from what's going on and focus on who we are in Christ. And we need one another, because sometimes I think I get in my own little world, and I know these truths, and Satan just kind of spins me around, and then I go talk to one of you, and you just kind of say the word, hey, do you remember the gospel? Do you remember who you are? And I'm like, oh, how did I miss that? We need each other. Our victory is assured in his victory. If our sanctification were dependent upon the strength of our human willpower, we would surely lose. Paul felt this way, even though it's hard to imagine Paul is a sinner. Philippians 3 says, Not that I've already obtained all this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Luther, I didn't have this in the closing hymn, or I might have made it our closing hymn today, although the one we have is very good. Luther was a man, I think, that struggled in his soul against the forces of evil. There are many times I think Luther was tempted to despair, and I think as a Christian, if you really care about holiness, there'll be times when you'll be tempted to despair. And Luther knew that he was united to his covenant head. Let me read to this you these words from a mighty fortress. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. And then he uses a word, Lord Sabaoth. And, and you think Sabbath, but it has nothing to do with Sabbath. It means Lord of hosts. It means he is the almighty, powerful one. The Lord Sabaoth is his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. You understand that? That's the joy of this. He is going to win in you. You must be made like him. Can we honestly say that the work of Christ, is our, I mean, Adam as our covenant head, is more powerful than the work of Christ as our covenant head? No way. So that's the question for you today. Are you fighting against sin alone? Or are you fighting against sin in Christ? Amen.